Welcome to Careers and Mental Health Conversations. This is the podcast where we discuss career counselling, career guidance, mental health awareness and mental health training in the workplace with your hosts, Patrick, Sally, Tina and Amy. Paul, thank you for joining our podcast today. You're more than welcome. We're looking forward to having a chat with you. Now, today I want to discuss the rapidly changing workforce globally and especially in Australia. So the first question I want to ask you, Paul, is what advice would you give to a graduate, a young graduate, or the parents of a young graduate commencing their journey into the workplace today within Australia? I think I might start with the um, with the advice I'd give to sort of the parents of a graduate, particularly sort of that that high school area. One of the things is that it's a very complicated marketplace out there at the moment, and, and more complicated than it was when they were they were leaving school. There's a lot of different op- options that are available for people, and there are within those options there are different options that are actually better than others so there's really a lot of research or advice they need to get in order to be able to to actually find out what is the best solution and what is going to work best for their particular child for for some kids going to university is going to be the right choice for some kids taking on a vocational education program is going to be the right choice for some kids just going out and working is going to be the the right choice. But within those three areas, there's a really wide range of things that they can do and a, and a wide range of access points and, and a wide range of different opportunities. So if they don't look at quite closely the, the kind of job or the career that the, that the person wants long term, then they can end up in a situation where not only are they in a job that they don't like, they're in a job that they don't like that is quite difficult for them to get out of because they have the wrong set of skills to be able to to go some, somewhere else. Or they've exhausted their options around training, development, all of those sorts of things and are, and are somewhat stuck where they are. So it's that conversation about, well, what do you want to do with your life? And then how do you get there? I, um, unfortunately, I don't think schools do a really good job of this um, at the moment, particularly in Australia. In other countries, it's probably better than what it is here. But I think in Australia, we do a fairly bad job of giving that really good career advice to kids, saying you know, just that simple thing of asking that question, what do you want to do with your life? Or you know, what do you want to do with the next 10 years of, of your life? Because often if you're a 17-year-old, Thinking about what you want to be doing when you're 50 is, a, is an impossible task, but thinking about what you want to do until you're 30 is probably a more reasonable question. Yeah, we just don't seem to do a good job of that because we don't ask the right questions, I think. And I think with the children, well, the children, with, with, with kids, it's very much about them thinking about what they want to do not just going, oh, well, I'll go to uni because mum and dad went to uni or I'll, I'll, I'll become a tradie because dad's a tradie or those sorts of things. It's about actually thinking about what they want to do 
and then going and talking to someone or investigating it themselves or whatever to figure out what's the best way to get there. So, Paul, we know that the 15-year-old in schools today is probably going to have seven careers. What are your thoughts on putting pressure on kids that they must go to university, get a job or do an apprenticeship, get a job? What are your thoughts on exploration and and taking the pressure off the kids and letting them explore? Given their brain doesn't develop till they're 25, they, you're quite right in saying they really sometimes have no clue. I've actually got kind of a personal story about that. My, my, my oldest daughter, when she was at high school, she did the whole job at a fast food place thing while, while, she would, while she was at high school. And when she finished high school, she was looking at going and doing nursing at university. And the fast food place that she worked at offered her a um, a junior management track role, and she went, "Oh, okay, I'll, I'll take this and I'll I'll do it for a while and see what happens." She did it for about two two and a half years. After high school, she then went and travelled overseas for about six or eight months, and then when she came back. She decided she didn't really want to be a nurse and she didn't really want to work in first aid and in, in, in fast food. What she wanted to do was work in early childhood education. So she's gone and gone and got her bachelor's in early childhood and primary education and is now much happier than what she would have been in either of those, those other options. But had she just walked straight into university, she would have been stuck. To, to some extent, um, I don't actually think she would have finished the, and we've, we've talked about this, I don't think she would have finished the program. And if she'd have not decided to go overseas and have a break, um, she would have been stuck in that, that management track then. So I think that there is a lot to be said for this idea of exploring what you want to do. And I think there's a lot to be said for not putting too much pressure on kids to make a decision. A lot of the, and sometimes it's something that concerns me about the apprenticeship system is that there's a lot of weight or pressure put on the idea of, well, you're in the year 11 now, you, you know, if, if you're not super academic, we should probably look at getting you an apprenticeship or a traineeship or something like that. These kids are 16. <laughs> I'm not sure that, and, and, you know, I know that perhaps the, the working working expectancy of a of say a bricky or something like that is probably only going to be until they're they're, they're forty on the tools at least. But I think that we're putting you're right. We're putting too much pressure on these kids to to make a decision about what they want to do for an extended period of of time. And often the problem with that is that it has other implications further down the track particularly if we look at things like um, funding around changing careers and that sort of thing from the various governments. If you've got qualifications above a certain level, it's, it's the case you basically have to fund it yourself because there's no real funding sitting there for those programs. So it can often really curtail 
what um, they're able to do. Mm. So, Paul, let's just go back to the school system there for a moment because you've made some very valid points. Uh, a, a child in year 10 starts thinking about what they want to do. You're right, they're 15 or 16. And then the options in the school system that are given to them are let's prepare you for going into an apprenticeship or let's prepare you for going to uni. There's only two options. What do you think needs to change so that we can um, make our point and educate others that they're not the only two pathways? I think that one of the things, and it's, it's a complaint that you hear quite regularly from employers, is that there's a set of skills that we're not giving the, these kids. It's things like I have a friend who works for a major retailer and she often jokes that the only thing she wants from a, a worker is that they turn up that they turn up on time and that they're articulate. They're the, they're, they're the two biggest issues she has, particularly with younger workers, is that they just – and one of the reasons for that is we've never built that into their education. We don't necessarily build soft skills. We seem to be of this opinion that if we do all the other curriculum things or we give them an apprenticeship – we prepare them for university, that the soft skills will somehow just appear. And I think that's really, that's a fallacy. The, those soft skills just, they don't appear. We need to actually nurture them. We need to do some work around those sorts of things. And I think there's nothing wrong with school, school leavers going out and Having a range of different jobs, it's it's good. It gives you an experience of the world. It makes you more, in the long run, it makes you more employable because you've got a wider set of skills. You've got a you've got a better experience of how the world works. I'm really keen on the idea of, of um, and did it with both of our kids, on the idea of getting them to go and do work. Um, just to experience what it's like to have to get up and to have to deal with people who, you know, are perhaps not, if you're working in retail or fast food, you're going to get customers who are unhappy. It's how we deal with that that is important and the skills we learn by dealing with that. So I think this idea of just sort of funneling people towards university and, and vocational education is, is, is a little problematic. I think that unfortunately, and we've seen this over over the past few decades, one of the problems that exists around that as well is that there can sometimes be this devaluing of the qualification. So if everyone has a bachelor's degree, then you need to have a master's to look different. If everyone's got a certificate three, you need to have a cert four or a diploma to be different. And... Given particularly in the vocational area, it's about skills is not necessarily about the level of the qualification. That can really create quite significant issues. So, yeah, I, I think that particularly 
um, younger kids still at school really do need to go out and just have an explore, figure out what they want to do, do a whole pile of different things. Um, I heard something on YouTube the other day where a guy was talking to uh, – a college professor was talking to a young college student who was trying to map his whole career out. And he said to him, he said, you're 21. Just go and do stuff that interests you at least until you're 25, if not until you're 30, and then you might have some idea about what you want to do. And I thought, well, that's really good advice. Yeah, Paul, that is really good advice. And, and I really think you touched on the point of the soft skills. The soft skills are the skills you learn when you're out in the workplace. Our government in the Future Young Australia report has come out and said that in the year 2030, they are going to be the main skills because a lot of skills are going to be placed, replaced by robots. However, it's just a word at the moment and I don't think that we really are placing an emphasis on teaching it. So your advice to, to the young graduates of going out and exploring and having a job at McDonald's and doing a bit of study with it, talent stacking, adding to your skills, I think is really, really good advice. What I'd like to ask you, and one thing that I notice a lot of people miss when choosing a career, how important do you think it is, and and if you do, why, is value matching your career to your own set of values or to the company that you work for? How important and what do you think about that concept? I think it's actually something that, that, that is really critical both for individuals and for organisations. I think that that idea of working for some working somewhere that matches your ethical and your values standpoint makes it much easier for you to be engaged, to enjoy your role, to be productive, all of those sorts of things. I'll give you a, a personal example. I've now worked in the not-for-profit sector for about a, almost a decade now. And prior to that, I worked in, in a very commercial side of the business. And if I'm being perfectly honest... I'm much happier on the not-for-profit side of the page because that matches my values and ethos much more than the highly commercial side of it. So much so that I really only tend to now work for, and I, I'm in a little bit of a privileged, privileged situation in, in relation to this, I only work for organisations where I feel there is a value match. And, in fact, if I don't feel there is a value match... I won't work for that organisation. Now, as I said, I'm in a privileged situation where I'm able to do that. But it is really important because so much of how we feel about our job hinges on how much we're connected to the organisation. Now, the flip side of that is that that means that organisations really have to live up to the values that they espouse. So if they're talking about ethical conduct and all of these sorts of things, then they have to live up to that. They have to make it part of 
what they do for their employees and how they work and how they work with their clients and, and, and those areas. Because if they don't, then those employees who have joined the company because of the values are going to become disengaged and leave. So this idea of actually, and I think some of it starts at actually figuring out what it is that you value. Sit down and, and find out what it is that you actually find valuable. We do a lot of work on, on values where, where I am at the moment. And we, one of the things I, I say to people is write down the 10 things that you value most. Don't, don't think about initially what order they're in. Just write down 10 things that you value. Once you've got them, and it's pretty hard for most people to get to 10, but it's worthwhile, then start thinking about numbering them and figure out what it is. And you'll be pretty clear about where your, your top three or four things are. Then I think if you can find employment or a role that matches those values, then you're going to be much happier and much more content and much more engaged than if you're just working because someone's paying you a lot of money or you're just working because you have to. If you're engaged in the process and you believe in the values of the organisation and the organisation reflects those values back to you, then it's going to be a much more productive and conducive experience for everybody. Okay. So let, let's leave the graduates for a moment and let's look at, uh, let's look between 35 and 70. There are a lot of people out there unhappy in their jobs. They don't have the courage to leave. They most likely need the money and they don't know where to start, yet their values are so conflicting with that organisation, they're miserable. What is your advice to those people stuck in a rut, stuck in a job that they're just going to work because they must? My first piece of advice is don't quit before you have another job. <laughs> that's kind of one of the that, – that's always been one of the key sort of ideas for me. But also then go and talk to someone about it. Go and talk to someone who – specializes in these kinds of these kinds of areas in job transitions or or career change whatever it is and have a chat to them about what the various options are because it's a really confusing landscape out there particularly once you're past that sort of what's viewed as standard educational kinds of ages so once you're past about 25 it becomes a very confusing landscape because there's a whole pile of different rules there's a whole pile of different opportunities. Um, there's still a fair bit of opportunity f uh, around older age apprenticeships now. So, so people in their 30s deciding to become butchers or bakers, plumbers, all of these kinds of things. It's about deciding that you want to change and then figuring out how to do that. Everybody's journey is different, though, I think, there. And... Uh, again, an experience I had a couple of years ago. Had a guy who had worked for one of the rental car organisations since he was 17. So he was in his mid-40s 
at this point. So his entire career had been working in, in, in the rental car industry. And he hated it. He'd hated it for probably a decade at, at this point. And um, the organisation I was working with at the time, we had a little store set up at one of the local employment expos. And he was wandering around looking at everything, trying to make a decision about, about where, to, where to go or even what to do. And um, he came over and, and sort of started talking to us about what we offered and that kind of stuff. And I said, look, let's just hang on for a minute. So what do you want to do? And he said, no. So I really want to work with older people. He said, I really, he said, my parents are getting older and I'm starting to see how, he said, I'm not happy necessarily with the care they're getting. He said, it just doesn't seem that everybody really understands what, what, what they're doing. And I went, oh, okay. And we, we talked probably for, on and off for probably two or three weeks after after that point about what he might want to do, which, which bits of sort of the, the, the aged care community sector area he was really interested in, and which bits he didn't like because there was some stuff that he really didn't want to do, which is, which is fair enough. And eventually he decided to go and do a four in aged care. And he's now the manager at one of the um, the aged care centres um, up in the Moreton Bay region. And that was driven entirely from the fact that he had a whole range of skills anyway. We were just adding a qualification on top of that, giving him a couple of other skills. And within six months of starting working with an organisation... He was the team leader and then all of a sudden he was the manager of the centre because he already had all the, the prerequisite skills. He didn't know he had them <laughs> and, in fact, he didn't know he had a lot of the skills around aged care until we started going through the program. And he's like, I know how to do that. And it's like, yes, of course you know how to do that. <laughs> um, the big thing for him was the confidence factor, though he was really, really worried uh, about two things. He was worried about changing roles and, and that sort of thing, moving into a new position. He was also really worried about the concept of study because he left school in year 10, essentially, and had done no study for 30 years. Um, so he was really, really scared about the concept of actually sitting down in a classroom, um, learning things. And it was like, I, I, I don't know if I'm able to learn this stuff. So there was a lot of work done to actually just, and, and he could because, again, he'd been doing, he had the skills because he'd been doing it for most of his life anyway. He just didn't, wasn't able to, to see how he could transfer those skills into into a study mode. So building that confidence around that and building that confidence in himself that he did actually know what to do, that he was um, capable of doing these things and that it wasn't going to be the end of the world if he left the job that he was in. There was work out there. Um, we ended up 
we, we had placements with him in the program and one of the um one of the organizations came in he did a placement with them for a couple of weeks and when he finished the placement which was about halfway through the program they said when he finishes can we have him and actually can we have him for a day a week now and so he negotiated he then went and negotiated with his role with his job and said look I'm thinking about leaving. I don't want to leave you guys in the lurch. Can we negotiate some stuff? He also did night shifts and those those sorts of things. And he, as I said, now he, he manages a, an aged care centre. So it's about confidence. It's about understanding what you want to do. And it's about talking to someone. It's about talking to someone who actually knows all of the ins and outs about this. Yeah, thank you for that. That's really true because confidence or lack of and self-esteem is a big one for people stuck in a job that they're hating and they often lose a sense of who they are and a sense of purpose. And often if, you know, if you're helping someone and you ask them who are you, they actually don't know. Yeah, I've got a, a a number of acquaintances who are in, in very similar situations where they've been in roles for most of their lives, roles that were not roles. They were roles that they entered never thinking that they'd be the job they were in for their entire lives and jobs that don't really have any career progression attached to them. So in some cases they've been doing exactly the same thing for 30 years. Now, that's going to be stressful and annoying, even if it's something that you love, <laughs> doing pretty much exactly the same thing every day is eventually going to wear thin. And you're right, it, it erodes that sense of self-confidence. It erodes that sense of self. It erodes that ability to think outside of that box that you're in, and even if you're really, really good at that, it stops you thinking about where else those skills could go. So how else could I put those skills into play that might move me somewhere else? Yeah, so it is, it is very difficult, and, and that idea of being stuck somewhere that you don't, that you don't enjoy, that you don't like, that you don't want to get up in the morning for. Um, as I said, I've been really lucky over the last probably decade, I've had jobs where I freely admit I am really happy to get up and go to work in the morning. I've also had jobs where I wasn't happy to get up and go to work in the morning and I know which one I prefer. Okay, let's just talk about that a little bit more. When you're in a job that you really don't want to get up and go to work, it flows on and it impacts on your relationships, your financial situation, your health and well-being, your mental health. Let's talk about that. What can we say to people about that sort of thing that are feeling sick every day? I, th I think if you're feeling that way, then that is a really strong indicator that you're in the wrong place. Um, if you, uh, everybody, 
at some point goes, I really don't feel like going into work today. But if you're saying that every day or more often than not, then there's a problem and you need to recognise that there's a problem. What do we do about that? Again, it's, I, I really firmly believe we need to go and talk to professional people about this. You need to go and talk to people who understand what that process is like, who perhaps have an understanding of, of the mental health implications, who have an understanding of the options that are available for people, who have a skill at helping people transition across roles and, and these sorts of things. It's because most it's not a skill that most people have. It's not a skill that most people in the vocational education or in the education sector in general have. The education sector is really good at teaching people how to do stuff. We're not really necessarily good at teaching people, at showing people how to utilize those skills over a whole range of areas, how to transition between things, how to get jobs, all of those kinds of things. Do you think fear plays a factor? I think fear plays a massive factor. I think it really it, it impacts upon a lot of people. And I think sometimes it, it's. It's a reason there is some reasonableness to the to the fear. If your mortgage, if your if your family and your mortgage depends on you working every day of the week, then the concept of changing that or taking a chance or or, or even taking a new role where there's you know, the standardly the three or six month probation period is like well. Oh, what happens if at the end of three months they they decide they don't want me? And yeah, that can be really terrifying for people, and it's it's a real fear because if something does go wrong, then of course they're in they're they're in quite a bad place. I think though that we're fairly well. Actually, I think we're very lucky in Australia in that there is a lot of opportunity out there and that in general employers aren't looking for people that they can fire after three months. Employers are looking for long-term, engaged, happy, productive employees So, because it costs so much money to churn through employees. So it's much more effective for a company to actually build a a happy and engaged workforce than it is just to 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 churn through new people all the time. So let's just look at those people for a moment. They're in a job, they've got transferable skills they don't know about. They've they've um, built up a lot of skills that they would probably be equal to some sort of qualification, but they haven't done anything else. So what advice would you give them? Like you can go out and get your piece of paper, one element. What else do you think these people need to be doing to set them above everyone else that's applying for the same job? I think there's a couple of things. I think one is um, 
really understanding the skills that they have and being able to articulate those skills. I mean, I've, I've interviewed lots and lots and lots of people for jobs over the time. And I can tell you in almost all of the cases, the person who, who produces the best interview gets the job. They may not necessarily have the perfect set of skills, but they are the person that presented themselves well, that answered the questions well. I'll give you an example. Um, quite recently, we recruited for a new staff member. And one of the questions in the interview was, can you tell us a little bit about what the organisation does? Now, we had eight interviews. Three people answered that question well. In fact, I would say that the other five hadn't even looked at the website, <laughs> hadn't done any research into it. And, and for me, that was really astounding because it's one of the first things I think about when I think about going for an interview is that, oh, well, I need to figure out what this company does and how they do it uh, and that sort of thing. So it's that idea that those sort of skills that, that people seem to, seem to not have and it's building and developing them and it's being, being able to be really articulate about that. I think one of the problems for people who, um, have, have been in these jobs where they're not happy or where their self-esteem has been eroded, et cetera, is that they don't necessarily say the word I. So it's not about them. It's, oh, as a team, and it's, well, I'm, I'm actually not interested in what the team did. I'm interested in what you did. So, you know, use the word I. Use the word I in your cover letter. Use the word I in your interview because it's about you and, and your achievements and being articulate about that. So I think that's a really important thing that a lot of, a lot of, um, people who are looking at transitioning roles miss. And pieces of paper are important, but they're not the reason that people get jobs. In fact, even in most areas where the piece of paper, a piece of paper is required, the reason people get jobs is not because of the piece of paper, it's because of how they appear in the interview or their other skills or something like that. The piece of paper says, yes, we can employ you. It doesn't do anything other than that and often people think that oh well what I need to do is I need to go and do another course or I need to go and do this or I need to upgrade my skills and it's like mm, maybe you don't maybe you just need to be better at presenting yourself to an employer maybe you need to be better at writing a writing a cover letter that really really sells yourself yeah. can I can I elaborate on that cover letter like you Paul I've interviewed many people and the the cover letter that always stands out to me is the one that said about the company people tend to miss it they they don't use I but they talk all about why why you should have them and not how they align with that company and why you want to work for that company because it is a valuable company. So this is where I think is a golden piece of advice for people. Tell us how to write a cover letter, Paul. Um, 
I don't know if I'm really the best at it, but um, it seems to be effective most of the time. I, I, I tend to sort of be really direct, um, and that is, well, first off, read the ad and read the selection criteria if there are any, because that's what you need to talk about in the cover letter. There's no point in telling somebody that you've got a scuba diver's licence if you're going to be sitting behind a desk in a 20-storey building all day, no one cares. <laughs> so it's looking at what, looking at the skills that they want and then telling them not just that you have those skills but how you have them, actually giving examples or indicators of that. And then I think it it's that piece about value, what I want... What I want to see from a cover letter is a compelling reason why I should employ you. And that often comes from the value that you're going to bring to the organisation. So it might be, and if you do your research properly, this can be really easy. So if you're applying for, say, a marketing position and you find out that, you know, their last couple of promotions have not gone as well as they, they'd wanted to. Then you can start talking about the fact that you've been really successful in, in adding value to, to promotions and creating good income and revenue from and, and new business from, from promotions. And that shows a value that you're going to then bring. And if you just talk generally, it's not... It's not as powerful. Um, I remember many, many years ago, um, an old guy was no old guy was talking about sales techniques and things like that, particularly for governments and organisations. And he was saying that what you need to find and solve is the pain point for people. And I think that's often the same with cover letters. What you want to do is you want to figure out why this job's available and the value that you can bring to stopping the pain of them not having someone in that role and why you're the perfect person for that. Um, I don't think there's a lot of... I'm not necessarily a huge believer in templates and and things like that for them and they need to be individualised for the job. So just having a standard cover letter is not going to get you through the door in most cases. Yeah, that's really great. So so what you've said there is don't just apply for the job without doing your research. Check out the company, find out how they're going, how long they've been going, who they are, talk their language and talk with them, not to them. Yeah, yeah. yeah very much so. Yeah. yeah, great bit of advice. Well, I'd really like to thank you for coming in today, Paul, you've made some valid points. One last bit of advice you'd like to give to parents and graduates? I think it goes back to that idea of thinking about what you want to do, but also going out and investigating stuff. Um, If we look at, say, university education, there's a whole range of different options. There's a whole range of universities out there. Some universities are better at 
some things and others are better at, at, at other things. So depending on where where you want to go, what you want to have, what, what results you want to get from the, the study that you're doing, you need to go and actually investigate the, the options because if you go somewhere and it's not highly recognised by the industry, then you've wasted two or three years of, of, of that where you could have been doing something else. The same applies quite heavily in, in the vocational um, sector. You really need to investigate whoever the provider is and look at the kind of outcomes that they're getting for their for their their graduates because again there's no point in going and spending a whole pile of time being trained in a particular area if when you walk out no one's going to employ you because your qualification comes from a particular provider or is in a particular area or something like that so it's it it's to go and really investigate what it is that you want to do and the quality of um, of what you're going to get. Often, and, and this is an unfortunate truism, people are somewhat forced into positions because of funding arrangements and that sort of thing. So we don't have the luxury necessarily of saying, oh, well, I want to go to this university and I'll just pay that money or I want this diploma so I'll just go and pay pay for that myself. So often we are constrained by by money and opportunity and, and, and funding. But we need to investigate, and that's probably the biggest thing. And I think that it's the thing that most people don't do. They, they don't go out and have a look. They don't go and talk to someone who might actually have some knowledge <laughs> about it. Um, they make assumptions or they go to the place that's close or they go to the person that's rung them up or whatever, and that's never going to produce an optimal outcome. So piece of advice would be really think about what you want to do and then investigate the way to get there. Careful planning. Yeah. yeah. Paul, thank you for coming. I could talk to you all day and we certainly would love to get you back. Um, so thank you very much. Thanks, Sally. More than welcome. If you enjoyed this podcast and you would like us to appear in your feed, please hit the subscribe button and you're also welcome to leave us a review. For more information, visit careerdevelopmentcentre.com.au.